morning. I hope you've had a chance to be warmly greeted. It's nice to see all of the members and some visitors. Uh, uh, it is good to, to be together as a church family today. In, in the bulletin, you have a number of announcements of things that are going on. Let me just add one quick announcement about our youth ministry. Uh, this Thursday at 7.30 p.m. in the youth room in the uh, middle school building, there will be a meeting for the parents. So if you are a parent of one of the youth, please contact Carlos and get more details. But that meeting will be this Thursday night at 7.30 also, next week, there will be, next Sunday, there will be a car wash. So, uh, 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 hold up your, you know, save up your dirt and, uh, and get ready to wash your car to help the youth with some of their ongoing youth projects. It'll be $5 a person. will take place immediately after our assembly. You know, the rule of thumb, I guess conventional wisdom, the number one rule for, uh, home buying is location, 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 right? Uh, because that can affect a lot of things. I remember when we moved here, uh, someone warned us, and we were grateful because saw, we saw some really nice homes. And they said, just, okay, wait and go at night and see what it looks like. Oh, okay, so we went at night thought, wow, this doesn't look so nice at night. And, and then they said, wait till there's a storm and see how much it floods. And they said, oh, yeah, okay, flood zone, that's interesting. And, and so it, it's not always how the house looks, it's the location. Well, when it comes to Bible study, one of the primary rules is context, context, context. You have to understand what's happening around the text, what comes before, what comes after, those little clues that are in the text that will help us understand. Now, today's text, the first part of Mark chapter 10, is a difficult text. It's a difficult text. And so it's especially important in texts like these that we pay attention to the context now, we've been following the, the, the book of Mark, which tells us what it looks like to follow Jesus. When we get to chapter 8, it's the first of three times when Jesus is going to tell his disciples, I'm going to die. They are going to mistreat me. They are going to beat me up. They are going to abuse me, and I will die. They will kill me, but then I will be raised. The disciples, after each of the three times in Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10, each time he tells them that, they respond with some sort of weird, like, no, we don't really believe that, and, and we don't really think that that's going to happen, and we're going to go off on our own path. And each time then Jesus returns back to say, if you want to follow me, if you want to follow the Messiah, if you want to follow my path, this is what it looks like. In chapter 8, he says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, pick up a cross, and follow me. For us in today's world, that sounds easy peasy. Because we've never seen anybody hung on a cross. We've never seen something like that. Most of the time we see crosses on our communion uh, uh, silverware or trayware. And we see crosses on necklaces and, and they're gold and they're nice and they're shiny and they're worth something. The only thing that a cross was good for was to get murdered. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, there's a whole bunch of them. Grab one and follow me because that's where I'm going. And the disciples said, eh, really? You're surely not serious about this cross thing. He says, yep. Whoever wants to be my disciple. If you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose it. 
Well, after his second pronouncement of his and, and prediction of his death, he says, whoever wants to be the greatest has to be the last. Now, how many of you guys want to be last? How many of you guys want to be the least? How many of you guys want to be... No, we don't want to do that. That's not really fun. He even says it in terms that are so strong that we make it a little bit easier. If you want to be the greatest, you must be the slave of everybody. How many want to be slaves today? No. That goes against everything that I want to do and everything that I believe. Jesus says, following me is not for the faint of heart. It means sacrificing your very own life so that I can give you life. Following Jesus means giving your life for the benefit of others. And part of our challenge is that we live in a time where, as Will Willeman says, we think of Jesus as this loving, open, warm, accepting kind of being. In his book, The American Religion, Harold Bloom claims that we Americans have one predominant faith, and that is that God really, really, really likes us. And that he is thrilled with us all the time. That God just goes giddy when he thinks of us. And he couldn't be happier with our moral progress. He says that we are, that we feel that we're basically just good people in the embrace of a completely permissive God, which is quite the opposite from Jonathan Edwards' sermon of 1741 that proclaimed that we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. We've come a long way from that. But I don't know that we've come to a better place. We've just come to the opposite end of that spectrum. So on the one hand, we can have a very permissive attitude that says anything goes, we love you and just do what you want and God doesn't care, God just loves. On the other hand, we can get very rigid and say you break one law and that's going to follow you for the rest of your life and you can never get forgiveness and you just better not even show your face in church because God doesn't like the likes of you. Two opposite extremes. Well, Jesus doesn't espouse either of those extremes. Jesus raises the bar and says, okay, here's the deal. If you want to join me, here it is. This is the path I'm walking on. I challenge you to follow me. Discipleship is not for the faint of heart. Having that context in mind, we get to the first part of our text today, Mark chapter 10. Jesus left, I'm going to read this way because they keep moving that board further and further back. I don't know what the deal is. I'm going to have to talk to David or maybe get Joe to move it closer. Then Jesus left Capernaum and went down to the region of Judea and into the area east of the Jordan River. That's an important clue. We'll come back to that. Once again, crowds gathered around him, and as usual, he was teaching them. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? 
Well, he permitted it, they replied. Moses said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. Easy peasy. But Jesus responded, Moses wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts, your stubbornness. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. And since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Later, when he was alone with his disciples in the house, they brought up the subject again. Jesus told them, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery against her. No one had ever said that. And no one had never said, had ever said the following. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries someone else, she commits adultery. They're still in the same house. And one day some parents bring their children to Jesus so he could touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering Jesus. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples, said to them, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these little children. I tell you the truth. Anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on their heads, and he blessed them. Word of the Lord. Our culture is overly obsessed with meeting our individual needs and desires for pleasure, satisfaction, and fulfillment. What's in it for me? I have rights, and I choose to demand them. When I go to a restaurant, I want it my way. And if I don't get it my way, I'm going to keep bringing it up until I do, and maybe I'll get my meal for free, but I want it my way. This is true of the marriage relationship. John Adam and Nancy Williamson, who then changed her name to Adam, which evidently indicates a marriage, wrote a book entitled Divorce, How and When to Let Go. This is the quote. Your marriage can wear out. People change their values and lifestyles. People want to experience new things. Change is a part of life. Change and personal growth are traits for you to be proud of, indicative of a vital searching mind. You must accept the reality that in today's multifaceted world, it is especially easy for two persons to grow apart. Letting go of your marriage, if it's no longer fulfilling, can be the most successful thing you have ever done. Getting a divorce can be a positive, problem-solving, growth-oriented step. It can be a personal triumph. Jesus goes right against that and says, if you're going to say, I do, you better mean it, and you better stick with it. Now, as we unpack this text a little bit, we start with the fact that the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus. 
you know, you, you might have had someone ask you one of those kind of trick questions before. Like, I remember the first time someone asked me, hey, Jim, have you stopped beating your wife? And initially I said, well, yes. Wait, no, wait. And so if you say yes, it's like, oh, so you stopped, huh? If you say no, oh, you haven't stopped. It's a trick question. Jesus knew that this was a trick question. There's two reasons it was a trick question. It was a trap. One, there was a raging debate between two prominent rabbis. They each had their own schools of thought about how to interpret this text that is referred to about this certificate of divorce, this writing of divorce. Uh, The school of Rabbi Shammai and his followers, uh, that school believed that a man could divorce his wife for infidelity and only for something where she commits infidelity. Rabbi Himmel and his followers said that Deuteronomy 24 means that a man could divorce his wife for just about anything. And the examples in rabbinic literature are if she doesn't cook well, if she isn't as attractive as she used to be. Now, this is actually written down in ancient literature, okay? And as you can imagine, Rabbi Himmel's position was a little bit more popular So this is a trap for Jesus because if he went with one, then the other group and all of their followers could say, ah, he's just some infidel. Or if Jesus went with the other, then they say, ah, he doesn't really know what he's talking about. We're not going to follow him. And so the the Pharisees were hoping that they could catch Jesus in a bind. But but there's another, a little more sinister reason why this was a trap. Jesus, uh, Mark tells us that this took place in Judea, east of the Jordan River. This was the area where John the Baptist was preaching. You remember John the Baptist? Remember John the Baptist got himself in trouble because he was preaching against the ruler? Because there was this man named Philip who was married to Herodias. Herodias got tired of Philip, decided that she was going to kick him to the curb and marry Philip's brother, Herod. Herod Antipas. When John heard about it, John told Herod Antipas and Herodias that you guys shouldn't be doing this. God doesn't like this. This is not correct. Herodias, you should not be married to Antipas. Herodias took offense, burned with anger, waited for the first opportunity she had, and when she had it, She had John the Baptist's head cut off. Jesus is in this same area. And I think the Pharisees were hoping that maybe Jesus would make a similar mistake where he would go against Herod. Herod would do the same thing. And then their problems with Jesus would be over. But but Jesus doesn't fall into the trap. Keep in mind that this teaching is born out of a loaded trick question. They're trying to mess Jesus up. And they want to talk about divorce. And so Jesus says, you know, I'm not really interested in talking about divorce. Let's talk about marriage. The Pharisees wanted to talk about how do you get out of a marriage? Jesus says, let me me talk to you about how you get in and what you do in a relationship. Now, Jesus quotes... From Genesis chapter 1. 
He knew Genesis chapter 2, but he didn't quote from Genesis chapter 2, but he quoted from Genesis chapter 1 where it says that the man and the woman, woman were made in the image of God, and in order to image God faithfully, we needed two individuals. And in Genesis 1, we have the very clear sense that the man and the woman are equals before God, and when you take, in God's math, you take 1 plus 1, you get 1. Now, the Jews would have accepted that, but what they believed was you take one and one and you get one, but a really big one and then a really tiny little one. The guy would be like an owner and the woman would be the property. The guy would be a master and his wife was the servant. Every time the Pharisees refer to this, they say, How can a man divorce his wife? In a male-dominated society, women didn't have many rights. So Jesus points out, first of all, well, God didn't command you to have a divorce. You don't have to divorce. That was actually a concession due to your stubbornness. Now, why would giving a woman a right or a certificate of divorce be a concession Well, because what we have is situations where, because the man was the only one who could divorce, the man decided that he was unhappy with his wife. But rather than cutting her free, he just kept her there in limbo. Because prior to this legislation in Deuteronomy chapter 24, a man wasn't obligated to do anything with this woman. He could kick her to the curb, and she had nowhere to go. She couldn't get married because she had never been divorced. She was stuck. And the only options for her were to become a servant or to become a prostitute. So when God tells Moses to allow a certificate of divorce because of the stubbornness of the men's hearts, he was standing up for women. He was standing up for their ability to survive in a male-dominated society where they wouldn't have to be stuck in this life that was unsavory. And Jesus simply points that out. You guys, speaking to the Pharisees, have set this up so you can take advantage of women and I won't let that happen. If you say you're going to marry this woman, marry her and stay married. But once they're in the house, the disciples say, wow, that's pretty rough, right? Because we all know that divorce was very common in the first uh, first century. Man, we all know how hard it is. And then just Jesus gives us this unflinching statement that makes our head spin where he says, Okay, if a man divorces his wife and then marries another, adultery. What? Well, you know how sometimes in, in, in when we speak in language, we, we abbreviate. For example, if I say, don't drink and drive, there's an implied phrase there, right, that we don't say. Don't drink alcoholic beverages and drive. We're not saying, don't drink water and drive. Duh. Don't drink Gatorade and drive. No, it's don't drink alcoholic beverages. But you don't have to say that. 
All you have to say is don't drink and drive and everybody in America knows what you're talking about. They still do, but they know what we're talking about. (laughs) Jesus had already said that marriage was allowable by God for infidelity. It wasn't necessary for him to say that. So this is what he's actually saying. If a man divorces his wife for some other reason than marital infidelity and marries someone else, if he kicks her to the curb because he's tired of her, if he kicks her to the curb because uh, he he doesn't like how she cooks or, or because she's gotten some wrinkles or her hair has turned gray or she's put on some pounds, if he chooses any other reason other than marital infidelity and marries someone else, that is paramount to adultery. Don't do it. And then he says, and you can hear the the record scratch. If a woman divorces, what? In Jewish culture, women had no right of divorce. But they did in, in Greek and Roman culture. And they're in this area where there was just this woman who had divorced her husband for some reason and then married her brother-in-law. And so most commentators think that what Jesus is doing in verse 12 is he's taking a shot at Herodias marrying Herod. But he's not doing it in public because he wasn't ready for his death. Jesus was willing to go to the cross, but he wanted to do it on his terms when God's plan was going to be fulfilled And getting arrested and murdered in the middle of the night was not part of that plan. So he gives that instruction in private. Now, women are held to the same standard, the high standard that men are. I'm sure you have heard the verse from Malachi 2.16 where it says that God hates divorce. And I think one of the reasons, even though that text doesn't explain, I think one of the reasons that God hates divorce is because of what it does to children. Divorce is painful for adults. Can't even begin to fathom the pain of divorce for children. Divorce has a way of bringing out the worst in people. And kids witness it up front and close. Kids see their parents turn into the most vicious, hateful, venom-filled people that you could ever imagine. Kids see their parents go to church and smile and hug and go home and lash out. Kids have heard their parents tell them, I will love you forever But they also heard those parents say that to their partners. And the kids think, it's my fault. If I would have been a better kid. And so God just dislikes divorce. Because of what it does to the families. And I don't think it's an accident that immediately after talking about divorce and marriage we have this text about children. And what Jesus says is, listen, don't mistreat the kids. In fact, if you want to get to heaven, you better start acting like a kid. 
Now, kids have a number of different characteristics that we might be envious of and some that we're not so much envious of. But I think the point here is a child receives whatever is given to him. These are most likely small children. They're small enough to get up in Jesus's lap for Jesus to hold in their arms. We're not talking about adolescents, teenagers. And what Jesus is saying is that the way a child receives everything is that they receive and accept whatever is given to them. They don't earn it. They can't win it. They just receive it. And he says that's how we should receive the kingdom. We should never think that we can earn it by our good behavior, or if we do all the right steps, then God is obligated to save us, or or that if I give enough of a contribution, then that's how I get in. No, we should receive the kingdom just like these kids, as a gift. Depends on the giver, not on the receiver. God values women and children, and that's what Jesus is saying in this text. He values family, and his desire is that a man and a woman think long and hard before they go into a marriage, and once they make that commitment, that they stick with it. And once they bring children into the mix, that they do whatever it takes to raise those children in a home where love and respect abound. But that's not how many of us grew up, and that's how not—that's how not—that's not how many of us live. But I want you to hear this because God, in no shape, form, or fashion, suggests that He hates people who don't live up to His ideal. God sets the bar high, but he also knows what we're made of and where we come from. And his compassion and forgiveness is as high a standard as his expectations. And before you grab these verses, or I grab these verses and want to show them to somebody I'm thinking of and want to say, see, see here, see, see, I I should keep in mind that Jesus, on two occasions, encountered a divorced person, and then he encountered a person that was in adultery. And in both of those cases, he did not condemn. He didn't even bring up the marital relationship. The Samaritan woman by the well had been married five times. He didn't say, now, you need to go back to your first, woman, uh, your first spouse before we even can have a conversation. He says, listen, I have living wife, uh, living water that will give you life, and I want to give it to you right now. To the woman caught in the act of adultery, he says, I do not condemn you. So Jesus puts the bar way up here. But when he finds us down here, he responds with compassion and love. And we can do no less. So where does that leave us? If you are unmarried, think long and hard before you enter into a relationship with someone. This is not something you rush into without counting the cost. And I'm not talking about the cost of the wedding. I'm talking about the cost (laughs) of giving your life to somebody. 
Think of how much paperwork you have to do to get a loan or how much paperwork you have to go through to, to get a uh, to, to buy a house or, or how much study and effort you have to do to, to develop a career like a doctor or, or a lawyer or a significant career like a pilot. And do you think you can enter into marriage without giving it really a lot of thought? Because, oh, man, I like you. Let's hang out. <laughs> marriage is harder than any of those things. Marriage can bring you the greatest satisfaction in life. It can push you to the limits of your sanity. There is no person on earth that I love more than my wife. And there is no person on earth that has driven me crazier than my wife. And I hate that she's not here. She's in with the kids. It's in my notes. I was going to say it. And she would say exactly the same thing, especially the second part. (laughs) If you're not married, open your eyes wide. The Jewish proverb says, once you're married, shut your eyes and don't open them again. (laughs) Remember that marriage was not designed to meet all of your dreams and needs and fanciful ideas. Marriage was designed by God to fulfill his purpose. And part of that purpose is to convert you into the best disciple you can be. Marriage will help refine our hearts and often by fire. Marriage gives us the opportunity to learn to forgive and serve someone. Marriage can be the best discipleship training you will ever go through. So if you are married, stick with it. Learn to love your spouse. 1 Corinthians 13, read it, memorize it, and live it. Not expecting that your spouse fulfill it, but that you fulfill it to your spouse. Now, please know that I'm not talking about abusive relationships. If there is abuse happening between the partners or with children or other individuals in the home, get help, professional help, immediately. There are hotlines. There are people that you can talk to. Don't allow yourself that type of relationship. What we're talking about is irreconcilable differences. What we're talking about is, well, we just drifted apart. Or we just don't see eye to eye anymore. And what God would say and what Jesus would say is, love the one you're with. You married this person, stick it out. Statistics have indicated that when you were at a low point, when a person was in a low point in their marriage and they thought about divorce, if they stuck it out within five years, they were there, they were back where they were initially. We all go through rough moments in our relationship. Don't bail when the going gets tough. And then lastly, if you were the cause of a divorce, know that God can and wants to forgive you. Forgiveness from God is accompanied by confession and repentance. And keep in mind that repentance for relationship sins looks very different than repentance, for example, 
for theft. If I steal $20,000 from somebody, my repentance means I pay that back. But with gossip or bitterness or committing adultery or murder, you can't undo what has been done. There's nothing you can do to pay back someone that you've harmed in that way. And the same thing is true with a relationship sin. You can't undo what's been done. What you can do is confess your sin. And you can go through a process of repentance that leads you to a point where you say, I promise before God I will not do this again. God values families. And his is the first heart that breaks when he sees a family begin to fall apart. If you need to talk to someone, if you need resources, speak to one of the elders or ministers today. If you need prayer today, we would be honored to pray for you. You can come to the front. You can meet one of our elders at the back. This is a hard saying. But understanding it within its larger context, we see that what God wants is for us to be his men and his women. And what that means is, in part being faithful in the marriage relationships that we've established. Let's all sting, and we're here if you need to prayer.